what comes to mind when I say the phrase, serving God? How do we do that? Why do we do that? Is there a right way to do that? Let's pray. Father, show us yourself. Help us to know you. Humble us, God. Help us to open our hands and open our hearts to hear your word and receive what you've said and what you're saying. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, our Lord, our rock, our redeemer. Amen. Let's recap what we've learned so far in this sermon series. In Genesis 1 and 2, we learned that God created the heavens and the earth, and that this creation was very good. We saw that God crowned his good creation with human creatures, Adam and Eve, and that he blessed them abundantly. He not only gave them life to live and each other to love, but they were given the joyful task of multiplying in the earth and having dominion over it as God's representatives. God, in all his abundant blessing and infinite wisdom, also gave humanity a command. You shall surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. God's loving generosity ought to have led his human creatures to trust him and his commands but humanity was tempted by a serpent to question God and his goodness and to assert themselves as the creator rather than the creature, the determiner of right and wrong. This temptation led to Adam and Eve's rebellion, and their rebellion incited God's righteous punishment. Their common and joyful tasks in life were cursed, and they were sent away from God's presence. But God also showcased something stunning about himself. Last week, we saw that God is merciful toward death-deserving sinners. Though humanity deserved immediate death and eternal separation from God, God relented and he even promised that a descendant of the women will bruise the head of the serpent as the serpent bruises his heel. One final thing God said was that he will put enmity between the serpent and the woman and between its offspring and her offspring. Our text today gives us a glimpse into that rivalry between those who follow the way of the serpent and rebel against God 
and those who trust that the promise of this woman's offspring will come true. Now, I want to give the main idea of today's message from the outset. I'll state this idea positively, but as we read, we'll mostly see what happens when the opposite of this idea is lived out. The main idea is this. Our service to God is acceptable only when we treasure him above all things by faith. Let's find out what I mean and the opposite of what I mean through this text. Turn with me in your Bibles or on your devices to Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. In the Pew Bible, it begins on chapter 3 or in page 3. Now, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now, Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain, a worker of the ground. From the outset, we're reminded of God's mercy toward Adam and Eve. Eve fulfills her name as mother of all the living by giving birth to two sons, And she recognizes that her giving birth to children as a gift from God. God helped her acquire a son and then another son. Both of these sons had vocations in the land. Vocations that remind us of God's original command to have dominion over the earth and subdue it. One was a farmer and the other a shepherd. Let's keep reading. Verse 3. In the course of time... Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. For the original Israelite audience, this type of offering was a normal way to worship God and show gratitude for what he's provided. Though what the two brothers offered was different, Cain brought the fruit of the ground and Abel, the firstborn of his flock, the word used to describe the type of offering is the same. They were presenting to God the same type of offering from what their vocations cultivated. Yet there is an obvious difference between God's reaction to their sacrifices. We read that God had regard or accepted Abel and his offering and he had no regard for Cain and his offering. None. What? Why? They offered to God the same type of offering. The text doesn't explicitly tell us why God regarded Abel and his offering, but I think Moses, the author, gives us a clue as to why in describing what Abel offered. Abel sacrificed the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. According to Leviticus 27, offering the firstborn of one's flock in Hebrew culture was akin to offering one's very best. In describing Cain's offering, however, the word first fruits is noticeably absent. It seems as if Cain had been going through the motions in his offering and likely keeping the best crop for himself. 
but it's still an offering, right? Why did God have no regard for it? God perhaps is seeing something deeper going on in Cain's heart that his offering actually exposes rather than covers up. Before we read on, take close notice in verse 4 that God regarded Abel and his offering. The person is regarded, not just the service. Look with me at the second half of verse 5. So Cain was angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is contrary to you, but you must rule over it. Cain's reaction to seeing God regard Abel and his sacrifice and not his own was one of anger and sullenness. Now, whatever was not at all acceptable about Cain's offering ought to have garnered God's just anger. But God yet again shows mercy to his human creature and like a loving father asks Cain about his anger, even providing guidance on how to be accepted. If you do well, God rhetorically asks, will you not be accepted? If Cain does well, if he, through his own means, offers his sacrifice like Abel did, he will be accepted by God. Accepted by God, the creator. It's crazy, that's an option. Humanity is already supposed to be dead. Yet here, God not only already accepts Abel's sacrifice, but offers a second chance to Cain. But sadly, that's not all God has to say. His guidance, like it did with Adam and Eve, also comes with a wise warning. This warning names something for the first time in the Bible that humanity has already encountered, namely sin. God says to Cain, God says if Cain does not do well, sin is waiting for him, like an animal ready to pounce on its prey. But Cain, if he wants to escape its clutches, must rule over it. Let's take a step back for a moment. What is this sin God is telling Cain to rule over? Biblical scholar Henri Blochet notes that the original meaning of the Hebrew term for sin bears a sense of missing the target, failing, or falling short of a norm or goal. David was helpful last week in helping us see the heart of sin for humans. Adam and Eve sinned by desiring to be their own creators. They asserted their own authority to discern good and evil over God's authority, and they disobeyed God. In this way, John tells us, sin is lawlessness. It refuses to listen to God and his ways. Talk about missing the mark. We're not God. We're creatures that ought 
No, that need to listen to our loving and good creator. But rejecting God doesn't just affect one's relationship with God. By sinning, humans reject and so are cut off from the only true source of life. And since we're cut off from the source of life, we also find sin affecting all that was created by the life-giving creator. Left on its own, sin taints, decays, and ultimately destroys everything pertaining to life. Indeed, James tells us that our wrong desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And so when God speaks of sin in verse 7 as this animal ready to pounce on Cain, we can imagine that this is sin that is maturing into something even more dangerous that must be stopped before it gets more deadly. In Cain's sacrifice, we are given a glimpse of sin's root in his heart. Now, we are observing the growth of sin's fruit in Cain's life. Let's keep reading. Verse 8. Cain spoke to his brother Abel. Pause. Perhaps he's going to ask Abel about his sacrifice or his right relation to God. Let's keep reading. And when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. In his anger and envy, Cain rejected God's life-preserving guidance. He failed to see God's mercy. Rather than ruling over sin, he fed it. And it devoured every good memory he ever had with Abel. He was blinded by it. He could no longer see his brother as a gift from God only a nuisance to destroy. Sin barricaded Cain's heart from his brother's cries as he spilled his blood on the ground. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel your brother? Cain said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Even after Cain's murder, God still comes to him again, asking questions like a father. Cain not only evades responsibility like his parents, am I my brother's keeper? He hardens his heart into lunacy, lying to God himself. Surely sin is reaching its full maturity in Cain's heart and it does lead to death. What is God's response to Cain? Verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. And when you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer in the earth. Similar to Adam and Eve, God responds here as a heavenly righteous judge and confronts Cain with his crime. 
The evidence for the crime cries out to God. Abel's murder had no human witnesses, but it was not hidden from God. No sin is. The author of Hebrews reminds us, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him whom we must give account. Like the serpent in the garden, Cain is cursed directly relative to his domain of living. Now you are cursed from the ground. The ground on which his brother's blood, the, the ground on which he spilled his brother's blood, will yield nothing more to him. Abel's innocent blood acts as a kind of contagion on the earth, and the earth closes up to Cain to spare itself from more of Cain's evil. Ironically, Cain's sin leads, to, leads him to lose what he sought to keep at the beginning of our narrative, the fruit of the ground. Now he'll not only be barred from his vocation, he'll be barred from his home as a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. The Hebrew terms for fugitive and wanderer speak to both the external and internal state of Cain. In short, there will be no region on earth where he where he'll not have a restless and fearful mind in light of what he's done. We see Cain understanding the gravity of God's sentence in his response. Verse 13, Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. There is a mixture of remorse and accusation in Cain. He hates his punishment and understands it rightly, but fails to take ownership as the one responsible for it all. You have driven me away from the ground. He is passively hidden from God's face as if he is the victim. And he even allows his fear to add to God's sentence against him. Whoever finds me will kill me. Let's keep reading. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. God corrects Cain concerning his fear of the bounty on his head and yet shows Cain's fear isn't misguided. The text is silent on who exactly would pursue Cain, but again, God confirms that his fear is legitimate. Yet God's action after this confirmation is yet another sign of God's mercy. The unspecified mark given to Cain both astonishingly protects Cain and puts an end to the cycle of violence set in motion by Cain's murder. What kind of God is this? Verse 16. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Adam and Eve were cast out of God's presence. Cain actively went further away from God's presence. Now, in the next section of our text, I will only make a few relevant observations. In short, we will see the moral and cultural trajectory 
of Cain and his descendants. Read with me verses 17 through 24. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built the city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erad, and Erad fathered Mahujael, and Mahujael fathered Methusael, and Methusael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Adah, and the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. Zalah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zalah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. The trajectory we see in Cain's descendants is a bit ironic. On the one hand, they're successful engineers of culture. They build cities. They invent new ways of living. They create instruments for music. They forge instruments of bronze and iron. But on the other hand, we see rebellion against God increasing. Marriage, which was designed for one, woman, one man and one woman, is rebelliously expanded. There is now arrogance in violence and injustice. What's more, these cultural ingenuities are soon used to promote, to promote more sin. Musical instruments are used to celebrate idolatry. Bronze and iron are formed into weapons. Humanity looks to be defeated by the way of the serpent, by sin. Let's finish the chapter. Verse 25. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Though Cain and his line of descendants are shown to be on a dark trajectory of increasing sin and destruction, our text ends with a beacon of hope. God shows himself merciful again. He grants Eve another offspring. It's crucial to note here that the word used for offspring is the same word that was used in the promise of Genesis 3.15. God seems to be reminding his people that despite humanity's sin, he is again providing hope through his promise. The woman's hope for an offspring of deliverance continues. But what about Abel? Yes, him and his sacrifice were acceptable to God. But does it matter? And does this hope or this promise matter for him? He's dead. The end of this chapter gives us a vital key into understanding this narrative from its outset. What is this bellowing note hit at the end that leads us to believe hope has returned? 
Look at the second half of verse 26. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. That's it. The signifier of a positive turn in the narrative is a ruined people's plea to God's character, his name. The beauty of Abel's life is not merely seen in how great of an offering he gave to God. It's seen in what motivated his sacrifice. Hebrews 12.4 tells us this. By faith, Abel offered to God a more, accept, a more acceptable accept, sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous. Abel's life exemplified this plea to God's character. Remember the main idea I said at the beginning of this message. Our service to God is authentic and acceptable only when we treasure him above all things by faith. In Genesis 4, we now see that Abel and his offering were regarded by God, not because of what Abel offered, but because, but because Abel offered what he had out of genuine faith. But what is faith? In a sense, it's the opposite of sin. A sinner seeks to be his or her own God. A person of genuine faith recognizes and loves God as the good, loving, and generous creator. He or she trusts him and his word. Abel's faith in God caused him to offer his best in thanksgiving to God. It wasn't out of obligation, it was out of wonder. Abel believed and treasured God and his promise. He listened to God's promise of deliverance through, through the offspring and understood God would bring it to pass. And God did bring his promise to pass. Abel is dead, but only for now. Because God's promised offspring, Jesus Christ, is not dead. Hebrews 12, 24 says, The blood of Christ's perfect sacrifice speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. How? Abel's sacrifice in faith was a demonstration of righteousness for us. But the self-sacrifice of the Son of God was not only the demonstration of perfect righteousness, it's the application for all who believe in him. What Abel believed, Christ achieved. Through Christ's wounds, we are healed entirely. Those who have faith in this deliverer receive all the benefits of his perfect life, death, and resurrection. In him, we have peace with God. We are adopted as his children. We are given resurrection and eternal life. And we share an eternal fellowship with him and with all those who follow him. So in application, I point us back to our original questions about serving God. Are we serving God like Cain or Abel? We may be doing things God calls us to do. We may be gathering with God's people every Sunday, giving generously, helping and visiting the poor. But 
deep down, we may know we sometimes do it out of a sense of obligation. It's joyless. It may even feel coercive. We may think our service gets us on God's good side or can twist his arm in giving us something we really want. If that's the case, we've likely forgotten or have never seen who God is and all that he's done for us in Christ and all that he's promised those who abide in him. Are you serving God like Cain? If your service stems from a sense of obligation, are you serving this God? If you're serving God out of fear, are you serving this merciful God? If you're serving God while being envious of others' gifts, are you serving this generous God? If you're serving God while quarreling with others, are you serving this forbearing God? If you're serving God while seeking praise for your gifts, are you serving this all-satisfying God? What causes fights among us? Is it not this, that our passions are at war within us? We desire and we do not have, so we murder. Yet God gives us everything in Christ. He's made known to us the path of life. In his presence there is fullness of joy. At his right hand, pleasures forevermore. May we, experiencing the fullness of God's redemption in Christ, offer our bodies as living sacrifices to him. Sin is crouching at our door, but by faith in Christ, we are set free to rule over it and serve God for his glory and our joy. Father, you've given us everything we need. What on earth do we, des- do we desire besides you? We have life eternally. We have fellowship at all times because of your mercy, because of your mercy in Christ. God, fill us with a sight of yourself. Satisfy us completely with you and with the satisfaction we have in you, overflow in love. Would we give our lives because we've been given everything in you. Amen.